few weeks ago, I used a, uh, a comic book hero, superhero as an illustration, and multiple people sent me versions of this image. Uh, all the different ones I received had Jesus sitting with a bunch of superheroes, and Jesus is saying, and that's how I save the world. Uh, this one was my favorite. This was drawn by a Scottish teenager, and uh, I like this one best because he has the flash reading the Bible. And when I saw it, I thought, I wonder if he's a speed reader. Um, <laughs> It was wonderful to get all these responses, especially because it was all part of our plan. You see, I wanted everybody thinking about superheroes as we entered this month because of what we are going to introduce today, our annual theme. This is our vision for the coming year. This is our overriding focus, to use your powers for good. That's our vision for this next year. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can say it with me on the count of three. Use your powers for good. One, two, three. Use your powers for good. Amen. Of course, this is a major theme in all fantasy hero stories. The hero must learn to use his or her powers for good. This heroic ethos appears in hundreds of movies, thousands of stories. And did you know it's taken straight from Jesus' words? Did you know that? Look, Luke chapter 12, verse 48. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. Marvel Comics famously used Voltaire's restatement of it, with great power comes great responsibility. This is the great super struggle of life, and it's not fantasy. It's based in real life. Every person has to learn just how powerful they are and how to use that power. We all learn in life that we have the power to either be a goofus or a gallant, right? Not merely highlights books for children, not merely comic book characters, not just celebrities and famous athletes. Every one of us, you, me, everybody must learn their strength and how to marshal it for good. Now, for we who are Christians, this represents serious responsibility. Fellow Christians, did you know this? You are possessors of unbelievable potency. Read with me what God tells us in Romans chapter 15. You take the underlined text. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit? That is the power that created the entire universe. That's the power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. That is the power that saves every lost soul. This, this is the greatest capacity possible. It's beyond human imagination. And that's what fills your soul. Now, I know, I know what some of you are thinking. In that, uh, in that uh, droopy voice that you like to affect, you're saying, Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't feel very powerful. In fact, I'm really weak. Oh, I know, I understand. I often share that feeling. Thank you for sharing. But God has that covered as well. Um, read with me what the Lord says. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Let's just take it line by line. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In weakness. In our weakness, Christ is made strong. No matter what our situation, we can be empowered by God himself. The question isn't whether we have power. It's what we'll do with it. So, as we ask in our notes there in your bulletin, look at the bulletin you got on the left-hand side, uh, our notes inside, how can we harness our power for good? How can we do this? The answer is summarized in one chapter in the Bible. One chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is the ultimate guidebook of using powers for good. Turning your Bible to the New Testament book of Romans and uh, go to chapter 12 and let's read verse 1. Read from verse 1. Therefore... 
um, the therefore is a context throwback to everything Paul's been talking about in the book of Romans, which is how amazingly God has blessed us. Okay, because you have all these blessings, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, stop right there, by the mercies of God, the first step in using your life for good is to be empowered by God. Here's how the Apostle Paul states the concept in another letter, uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God in deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Isn't that amazing? God works in us so we can work out. The the Greek word choices are very telling here. Um, What this translation renders, work hard, is a Greek term, katargadzomai. Katargadzomai is a word uh, made up by a famous playwright named Sophocles. He made this word up. It it means to bear something down to the ground. It was used in agriculture and industry uh, for centuries by Greeks for for completing a really tough task. It's a word that's used in in wrestling in the Olympic Games for for pinning somebody, wrestling them down to the ground. Katargadzomai. Now, how is it that we're able to have that kind of power? How are we able to achieve these victories? Because of God's energy in our souls. Look at verse 13. Working there is a different word. It's a Greek word, energeo. What English word do you think came from energeo? What does it sound like? Energy, yeah, it comes from energy. There is no need to panic like all the others who fear they will run out of energy. <laughs> you Christians have God's power available to you all the time. In Ergeo, God is working in you. He's given you something amazing, the capacity to be and do righteous. You can do real work. You can overcome the barriers and burdens of this life. The only question is, what are you going to do with that capacity? Will you, let me put it this way, will you impart God's imputed righteousness? If you want to use all that dynamic power you have correctly, start by relying on God's internal inner gale, not your own flesh. More on that in a minute. First, let's finish reading verse 1. Okay, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Worship God with your life. Uh, I need some volunteers. need people to raise their hand and, uh, and tell me, one thing you would really like to have. One thing you would really like to have. Be honest. What's something you would really like to have? Xbox. An Xbox. Not the old original, but a new one is what, yeah. Xbox One S. Okay, you got to add that S. That's very nice. What, what would you like? Think something you'd really like to see happen. Something you'd like to have. Uh, let me have an adult. I've had, a, I've had a kid. Let me have an adult. Yes. My kid's college paid for. Amen. What's something you'd like to see? Yes, go ahead. You, Matt. An airplane. It would be very nice. He just got his pilot's license. Can you applaud him, please? He got it this weekend. Very nice. All right. Now, now I asked that question. I've asked it a number of times over the years to lots and lots of Christians. Christians are a little different than other audiences. Here's what Christians will almost always answer. Uh, some of them will be afraid to say this out loud. They won't want to say it out loud. But most of their answers are immaterial. Uh, especially the moms and dads and, and the folks that are, that are a little older in the audience, they will, they will want things like reconciliation and, uh, and love and peace. And I've had people give the most heartbreaking answers where they say, I just would like to see my mom one more time. You know, that, that's what they really like to have. Or, as, as we had here, they'll ask for some really big ticket item. Well, I really wish I had a million dollars, which is about what it's going to cost to pay for your kid's college, you know. Uh, <laughs> But we love all your kids anyway. That's great. Um, it, or or a, a great big house or something like that. And all those things are fine. The real question is what follows. You ready? 
What will you do with it when you get it? The reality is that God gifts us with amazing blessings all the time. And if we don't channel those blessings into worship of God, then we're just wasting them. The greatest thing in the universe is enjoying God and bringing Him glory. It is the only right and good thing to do all the time, every time. If we don't do that with our little possessions, why would God grant us bigger gifts to waste? We are meant to worship God with our lives. So think, if I don't give my money robustly to God's work now, if I don't use my daily tasks as opportunities to praise God today, every day, if we don't use our bodies to honor the Lord, then we're wasting the strength that he's given us. Of course, that's very counterculture, right? Because most people don't use their lives to glorify God. That's why verse 2 says, live differently. Verse 2, look at that. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this age. Uh, age there is a term that means kind of style. It, it has less to do with any particular era and more to do with the style of life on this earth in every epoch. Uh, that's why David could write this a thousand years before Romans was written. He could say this, Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Such is the default setting of mankind. Don't be conformed to that. You can be transformed instead. Now, you're thinking in that uh, bad French accent that you like to use in your head, you're thinking, how can this be possible, right? If humans are corrupt and none of them does good, then how can I be transformed from that? Thank you so much for asking. Great question. Earlier in Romans, God gives us the answer. Here's how. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By trusting Jesus, we are transformed. And by his gracious gift of life, we can live differently, continually transforming. We must if we want to use our powers for good. And doing good also requires that we exalt humility and community. Look at the next verses, uh, verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, slide down to verse 16, which has a related thought. Verse 16, be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. If we are not humble, we, we will not connect appropriately with others. This is often overlooked. We can't be agreeable when we are proud. Human beings are like Legos, all right? They are made to connect with each other. Human beings are also like Legos in that if you step on them, you will get hurt. Um, seriously, we were designed to connect with each other. But, but, but what if this Lego is proud and he refuses to connect? It has to be done his way. I want it to go this way. It has to be my way, right? Is there any connection? No. What if, what if this Lego, all she can see are the things she doesn't like about that other Lego? Then what happened? Do we have any connection? No. You can't. If there is pride, there cannot be connection. In the same way, we can't fulfill our design for good, God's design for good, if we lack humility and community. 
Now, read verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Use your God-given gifts. God has granted to each person a divine shape. By the way, that's the acronym we use to remember the components. Shape, S-H-A-P-E. Spiritual gifts. Everybody has spiritual gifts if they are a believer in Jesus Christ. No, you are not the only person who doesn't have one, I promise, if you're a believer. Heart, the, the things for which God gives you a passion. Your, your abilities, your personality, your experiences, these make up your shape. Romans 12 and other passages make it clear that we are each supposed to serve according to our, our gifts and all of our shape. If you would like to investigate your shape and how you can best serve, please contact one of your church pastors. There are simple, great tools that they have that will, that will help you. To use our powers for good, we're next told to persist. Read verses 9 through 12. 9 through 12. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another, phileo, with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. You do know that it is almost a universal truth that there is no good deed that goes unpunished, right? Let's do this. Raise your hand if you've ever gone to do something good and gotten your nose pushed in uh, inappropriately. Raise your hand. I can't believe some didn't raise their hand. Oh, you're just slow. Okay, great. That's fine. Um, I talked to a pastor friend of mine in Houston just a couple days ago, and he told me this story. One of their crews was out uh, ripping all of the nasty, horrible, rotted carpet and wet sheetrock out of one of the church members' homes. They had a crew, and they were, they were taking everything out so the home can dry and then be rebuilt. This guy next door comes over, and, uh, and he's a businessman. He comes over, and he says, hey, I've got to run to another house I own, but what would it cost for you guys to do my house? Can you rip mine out as well? What would the charge be? And they said, hey, there's no charge. We're here to serve Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. After we finish with this lady's house, we'll be glad to do yours, and we're doing it in Jesus' name. And the guy said, sold. That's fantastic. He said, I've only been able to get one bid. One crew came out, and they gave me a bid of $20,000. That's the best I could get, so your deal of zero is really nice. I'll, I'll take that. And they said, sure. So they finished the lady's house. They went over. They did his house. Everything was fine until the next day when the guy called the church office cussing and threatening lawsuits. You know what he was so mad about? The crew had accidentally thrown away one mattress that he wanted to keep, a filthy, wet stinking mattress that he wanted to keep that maybe cost $500. They saved him 20000 bucks, and he's having a fit over a $500 mattress. It was ruined anyway. Now, when that happens to you, and it does all the time, right? When that happens to you, what is your response? Actually, I know you. First thing you do is you send the guy a bill for $19,500. But the next thing you do, the next thing you do is you say, that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm done. Right? You've said this. I'm, I'm, not, helping, I'm not helping anybody ever again. That's, I'm, I'm never, I'm, they can all just rot. I don't care, right? That's what we say. This is especially true if the good thing we were trying to do was share the good news of life in Jesus. In fact, what we'll do sometimes is we'll take Jesus' command about shaking the dust off your feet when you're rejected, and we will apply it not just to that one person who wronged us, but we'll apply it to everybody, right? But look at the terms in Romans 12. Look, look, cling. 
outdo diligence, fervent, patient, persistent, right? And notice that these aren't just bursts of activity words. These are words describing a marathon, not a sprint. Angela Duckworth became famous for her book, Grit, uh, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. It's a really good book. In it, she does a good job proving that persistence is the number one factor in life success. I want to show you a little video of what she has to say. Take a look. Angela Duckworth. Grit, put simply, is perseverance and passion for very long-term goals. To say a few more words about it, grit is really about your stamina, how consistently you're working in a certain direction and then how hard you're working in that direction. It is not about intensity. I've had young people come to me after talks and say, well, let me just tell you how gritty I am. I spent 72 hours without sleeping and I did this amazing thing. And I congratulate them, but I say, so what did you do the next week? And how many years have you been working on this? So when we assess grit by looking at people's biographies, for example, we don't necessarily look for bursts of unusual productivity or effort, but we really look for constancy of effort over time. Well said, and God showed us that 2,000 years ago, right? Cling, outdo, diligence, fervent, patient, persistence. Doing good takes grit. And doing good involves blessing all. Read verses 13 through 16. Share with the saints. Uh, saints in Paul's writing means everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Then the verse we read earlier, be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In 1654, a medical doctor in London wrote a book making fun of certain people uh, in England. He called his book Zootomia, Zootomia, and it reveals a man particularly unhappy with evangelical Christians. He was bothered. Here's what bothered Dr. Whitlock, the guy who wrote Zootomia. He was bothered by how these Christians wanted to clean up London and help all the people. They even wanted to help the lazy and the poor, and oh, this really bothered him. They wanted to help the mentally ill, right? He, he wanted to do something to make fun of these Christ followers, so he made up a term. He coined a term for them. He called them do-gooders, do-gooders. Now, he meant that as a pejorative jab, but the label stuck. It's, it has stuck for 400 years, especially as a term to describe idealistic people who want to do good in the world. The biblical behavior of Christians became labeled as do-gooder. Please think about that for a moment. Let's do this. Set aside the fact that some of these people, no doubt in his era, just like ours, some of these people were, were busybodies who were trying to play Holy Spirit to other people. Okay, set that aside and just notice that they had such a powerful cultural impact that they were defined by doing good. That's how they were defined, by the people who didn't like them. Now, when I stumbled onto that little historical fact, when I read that book, I immediately began to think about this. What are the terms used for Christ followers today? Some of the words used for us are positive, even if they were intended as negatively by those who don't like us, and in that we are similar to our forefathers. But other things said about Christians today are negative, and often these comments are sadly accurate. They expose how far some people have drifted away from the biblical ideal, the biblical command of doing good for all. 
And I will stop there because in a few weeks we're going to have a great lesson just on verse 15. For today, just notice this. God calls us to bless all. Start with the brethren and then love all. Love even your enemies, verses 17 and 18. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes, if possible, on your part. Live at peace with everyone. Now, is it possible to always be at peace with everyone, yes or no? No, it's, it's, not, it's not possible. But you can work hard to be sure you aren't the problem. In fact, if you want to use your powers for good, you must do that. Don't repay evil, as my mom drilled into our heads when I was little. Two wrongs don't make a right. To use your powers for good, one must love even enemies. We don't have time to read it today, but, but that's the premise behind Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. You, you can read about it in Luke chapter, chapter 10 this afternoon, and you can be convicted all over again about loving your neighbor. Far from retaliation, doing good demands the opposite of paying back evil. Doing good demands that we trust God with it all. Look, verses 19 and 20. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy and Psalms here to prove his point. Get out of God's way. Leave the punishment in his hands. Doing good is the right thing. When, when an unworthy recipient receives kindness from you without condescension, it puts burning shame on him. It is the right thing to do. Now, God closes out this section with the answer to a very serious question. The implied question after all this is the one I put atop the right side of our notes. The right side of your notes asks this. What good can doing good achieve? What good is all this? The answer is, it conquers evil. Look at the very last verse of our chapter. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. One thing we have learned from natural disasters, when you treat a belligerent as a neighbor, things change. They change. Anti-Christian bias just rolls away. This is why <clears throat> when the East Germans overthrew their communist oppressors a generation ago, that whole movement was led by Christians. It was entirely led by Christians who were determined to have nonviolent biblical protests for change. And by the way, being Germans, they were very proud of the fact that every one of their protests took place outside of work hours. Um, <clears throat> so German. What they did was they overcame evil with good. Good conquers evil. What else happens when we use our powers for good? It brings glory to God. Read with me. Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, verse 15, uh, starting in verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is the end purpose of every good deed? To glorify God. As, as we said earlier, nothing matters more. This also, solves, this also solves nearly every ethical dilemma in your life charity. Think, think about it. Suppose somebody approaches you asking for help to do something evil or, or unhealthy, right? They come to you and they say, dude, I need money. I got to get a gun. I have to have revenge, right? Or they say, please, really, I just, I need, I need the drugs. I'm trying to work my way out, but I need some money to, to buy alcohol, Right? I need, I need help so that I can run away with my underage girlfriend or whatever, whatever, et cetera, ad nauseum, ad nauseum. Now, think about whatever evil you are asked to do. If you only think about that person 
here's what happens. You actually might help them sin. I mean, after all, you love them, and they, and they are very sincere in their desire. But if you remember the purpose of all good deeds is to bring glory to God, well, then it's a no-brainer. You can't glorify God by helping people sin. Facilitating sin besmirches God and His Word. It, it becomes very simple, folks. I, I have many, many times looked at people that I love, and I have said, I cannot facilitate your sin. I am here to bring glory to God. I imagine many of you struggle with this, especially parents and grandparents, so let's practice, okay? I know I've had you say a lot today, but it's good for you. Let's practice, men and women, boys and girls, on the count of three. One, two, three. I cannot facilitate your sin. I am here to bring glory to God. Remember that. Amen. Doing good brings glory to Yahweh and it fulfills God's plan. Look up here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. God saved you by his grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Listen, you may come into this study today feeling like the worst loser on the planet, okay? And, th and there may indeed be many things that need changing in you. But this is always true. God has a plan for you. And if you are a Christian, he is fashioning you into his masterpiece. A friend of mine is an archaeologist. He has, he has sorted through thousands of Bronze Age pottery sherds. That's his area of expertise. And he says he's always struck by the fingerprints. You see, even from thousands of years ago, the fingerprints of the craftsmen are often found indelibly locked into the fired product. In the same way, we Christians are covered with the fingerprints of God. We are his masterpiece, and he crafted us to carry his grace. He shapes us and he fires us to fulfill the good purposes that he planned long ago. So when, when, you're, doing, when you're doing something good, you're fulfilling what God planned long, long ago. It's not really about you. It isn't just the things that you do in your church and community of which this is true either. It's true of everything. Your work. Just think about your work. Your career is an astounding opportunity to bring glory to God, to fulfill His plan. In fact, our church is, is a host site for a work as worship retreat that's coming up in a few months. I hope that hundreds will join us for this, this one-day examination of how we can do good through our work. What does it achieve to use your powers for good? It conquers evil, it brings glory to God, it fulfills God's plan, and it provides you rewards in eternity. Matthew chapter 25, 21 has a, a pretty nice short summary of this very deep and interesting doctrine. Uh, Matthew 25, 21, Jesus is telling a parable, and he, he says this, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Enter the joy of your master. The parable here is specifically concerned with how we invest the money that, that God gives us and we use it to make a difference for his kingdom. But the principle applies to all of our good works. Do good things with God's resources because you trust him and you will be rewarded in eternity. You will. Wow! How cool is that? We get rewarded forever just for doing what we're supposed to do anyway? So, so why wouldn't everyone use their gifts wisely all the time? As we ask in your notes, what keeps us from using our powers for eternal good? 
Three biblical words give the answer. Three biblical words explain why we don't use our powers for good. The first is the world. The Bible repeatedly calls this world an enemy of goodness. Of course, that doesn't mean the people or the physical planet, but rather a world system of thought that has been crooked since the Garden of Eden. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 captures the idea. Look, woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Obviously, Isaiah was a fan of sweet tea, as God intended. Um, <clears throat> Seriously, confusion of evil and good has been a problem in every culture, every single culture. And our current age has particular struggles with this. Uh, in his new book, Dr. David Jeremiah summarized pretty nicely. He said this, our moral compass seems to no longer have a true north. The needle spins crazily looking for a direction on which to settle. Now, if you want to know why we are so morally adrift today, I recommend you read this book. It's by Peter Burfind called Gnostic America. I recommend it highly. Mr. Burfine has the most insightful analysis I have seen regarding social violence in America. Let me just give you a little taste. Here's a taste of the book. He says this, over the last several decades, our society has made the wager that we can disconnect from a religion whose central message is that God traversed the gulf between spirit and flesh, becoming our flesh and blood neighbor, making our neighbor an object of love, and miraculously creating a community of human beings transcending race and nationality. But, as that same religion has warned us, madness lies the way of that disconnect. Madness and also violence. Close quote. That's why the world fights good. It's because it's disconnected from God's truth. Our second word is flesh. Uh, Matthew and Paul discuss this at great length in the New Testament, but let's just stick with Isaiah. Isaiah 65, verse 2. God is speaking. He says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the wrong path following their own thoughts. Oh, what a sad verse. Now, as you can tell from that quote, it is not our physical flesh that causes people to turn from God's goodness. It's our inner selfishness. It's our, it's our sinfulness. It's our wrong path thoughts that lead us astray. So, when somebody says to me, that tried old saw, and I hear this fairly often, I just need to get in touch with my inner self. I just cringe when I, I, I pray for them. What an idiotic idea. Your inner self is depraved, friend. Getting in touch with your inner self is like saying, I want to play around with the ring wraiths. It, this is absurd. Until Jesus returns and makes everything new, my flesh is indelibly tainted. Yes, yes, I am precious to God and I am made in his image, but that image is defaced by sin. Yes, as a Christian, I am justified by grace. I am being sanctified. I'm going to be glorified. But the flesh remains until I am glorified. I can't fully even trust my own thoughts because they are selfish and rebellious at their core. I can and must follow God's thoughts. Instead, I must follow God's word alone. Now, i got a perfect example for you of this. This, this is incredible. Uh, this week, this last week, a wonderful friend of mine texted me. And he said this, sent me a text, said, Wayne, I'm realizing that I have been blind to many of my faults. Thanks to God's word, I now see more clearly. I liked me a lot better before seeing these flaws. <laughs> to which I replied, we all relate to that truth. It's like when you're a preteen and you're oblivious to your own body odor. <laughs> right? Sorry. Newsflash. Um, <clears throat> And, and he wrote back, he said, uh, I'm going down my list of apologies, hitting the pavement metaphorically as I work on my restoration. Isn't that wonderful? Such wonderful people with whom I get to grow. 
And I added this. I wanted to give him a little warning about that, so I added this. I said, I've been there. I have been there. One word of experience. As you untangle the sin patterns from the blessings of God that made you great, don't throw the blessings away. They can flourish without the flesh fueling them. They can't. It just doesn't feel like it. I said, don't throw the baby out with the bath, okay? Now, my friend, not knowing at all what our annual vision is, not knowing at all what you and I were going to say today, he had no idea. He wrote this, and I quote, Oh, I know I must use my powers for good. Don't ditch the powers. And I said, wow, that could be a great annual theme for an entire church. What keeps us from doing true good? Three words, world, flesh, and devil. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be serious. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. A friend of ours is on a photo safari uh, in Africa right now, and she has captured some amazing pictures of lions. Only a fool would mess with those creatures. By the way, when they see a lion in their bush adventures, my friend's safari group draws together in mass. Uh, they draw close to the protection of this. They've got this great big hummer, and every time they see a lion, they say, Lion! Everybody draws back close to the protection of the big hummer. In the same way, we must draw near to God. Otherwise, you know what happens? Our good deeds get eaten up. They, they become warped by the devouring lion that is our spiritual enemy. That's why James chapter 4 says this. Um, oh, too far. Let's go back to James chapter 4. Can you guys take me back? James 4. Thank you. It says this, Submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded people. Like the world and the flesh, Satan can be overcome by God's power. But here's what we have to do. We have to draw near to God. We have to fix our hearts on the Lord and his power. So, final question. What's a simple way to fix my heart on God? What, what is a simple way to remember that I am here to use my powers for good? The answer can actually be found in one verse. One verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, 8. Read it with me, would you? Uh, one line at a time. Let's just go through it together. Micah 6, 8. Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That one verse is going to be our focus for the next three weeks. Because that verse has so much to say about using your powers for good. We're going to memorize that verse and we're going to learn to turn to it regularly in our lives. Over the coming days, we're going to study Micah 6.8 and we are going to become better at using our powers for good. This is necessary for our world, for our church, and for our own souls. Let me close with this. I want to share with you a letter that one of our elders sent to the rest of the elder board last spring. Um, he started with a quote from 2 Thessalonians 3, which says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And then he said this, Fellow elders, I think the church needs to follow reformed, that was, that was last year's great theme, with a call to engage. We should focus on reinvolvement in ministry, creation of new ministries, putting our money where our mouth is in a general revival of volunteerism and growth in service. As we briefly covered in the Imagine series last year, we should concentrate on doing good in the congregation, in local politics, in our neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, with the needy, and those who don't yet know their need for Christ. Close quote. Amen? Pray with me about that. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for that. I pray for that elder's vision to be our vision for this year, that we will use our powers for good. You've shown us 
what is good and what you require. Help us to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you. I, I pray that we begin just right now, today, everything we do the rest of today, the, the, the work that we have to do, the homework we have to do, the, the football games we're going to watch, the naps. Oh, Lord, thank you for the naps we're going to take. The offering that we're about to take as these guys come forward to take up our offering. Let everything be done with delightful abandon to you that we might use our powers for good. In Jesus' name, amen.